Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and... I'm Tom Jokic. My co-host and the creator of our show. Tom? And your, and your sparring partner. <laughs> we occasionally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we should, we should, you know, I'm thinking we should do a little feature on songs you should be ashamed to love. Okay, and I've Cause, said... Because what was it last time? Yours was uh, Afternoon Delight. Afternoon Delight mine by was, Starland Vocal Band. Let's give them credit. we built this city. We, <laughs> okay, but if you want to get me mad, just keep bringing up We Built This City, because I went okay. to town a couple weeks ago on that, and I apologize. I mean, I think of songs that it was totally uncool to like, uh-huh. like Jive Talking. Yeah, and that's too bad. I that's a, love that it's song. It's still a great Unap- song. Unapologetically, sure. like, since the time I first heard it, and it sure. blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, it's just a great song. Yeah. But some people are like, ew, you know? You know, I don't mind Puppy Love by Donny Osmond. Sorry. I don't, I, I know. I am now deeply, deeply troubled. I know, I can't help it. Now, I was probably, you know, you know. I, I'll explain to you why. Adam, call the paramedics. I, <laughs> I had a cousin who was just a little bit older than me, and I just loved her to pieces, right? Mm-hmm. And she loved that song, and so I wanted, I just, I, that was my only connection to her, and she loved that song, so I loved it too. Wow. So that's it. I think I was 10 when it came okay, out. Okay, sucky songs. Sure. Never My Love by The Association. Okay, yeah, I'm not boom, a big boom, one on that. Boom, and boom, Cherish, boom, boom. oh my God, yeah. I could just hurt myself. No, I'm not a, not, not a big fan of that. But I like uh, <laughs> we, Weekend in New England by uh, Barry Manilow. Okay. I love that song. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> we got to stop, don't let's, we? <laughs> let's, let's save some of this, okay? What's, what's on our show today? <laughs> okay, well, to cleanse the palate, we got Ozzy Osbourne on the show today. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> you know... If you like this, fresh dove, yes. <laughs> and we're not talking about soap. No. So, Ozzy from 1981 or 82 in that era. Right. These are great clips. You know, this is pure Ozzy. This is Ozzy the way you know him. But it's so interesting that he was like this in 1981. All those uh, low those many years ago. We also have a 2008 chat with Katy Perry, and this isn't a particularly in-depth chat. It's pretty lightweight, but you know, Katy. <laughs> Katie is, you know, a terrific songwriter, a very good singer, um, and of course she's back on American Idol now, um, you know, for better or for worse. So I wanted to uh, play this interview for you from 2008. So I'm looking forward to playing that for you. Great. Also, Christopher. Yes. You've heard this interview. Isn't this terrific? This interview that we have from 1998 with George Martin, the producer of the Beatles. He was in with us talking in 1998, talking about an album called In My Life, which was kind of a retrospective, but it was cover versions of Beatles songs and other things. But what he talks about and his relationship with the Beatles and recording albums like Abbey Road, it's all in this. This is a great clip. If you're a Beatles fan, we've got Mm. a good five, six minutes of stuff from George Martin, and I can't wait for you to hear that. Cool. We also have... The worst possible clip that I could find <laughs> from an artist that I ro- really wanted to hear from. So you and I were talking a little bit about Joe Cocker, and we'll explain why in a few minutes. So I run through our entire archive. I find one clip, and it might be the worst thing ever, but we're going to explain to you why we're going to play it. <laughs> You're going to play it anyway, right? Because in our last segment, we're going to talk to someone in a current interview who's going to be joining us in a few minutes who has a real connection with Joe Cocker. Ah, All right? All right. So let's get started with Ozzy Osbourne. Okay, confession time. I'm not a big Ozzy fan. No? No. Not even Crazy Train? No. Paranoid? Mm. 
I only, uh, honestly, I only really know and care about the hits. Iron Man, Paranoid, Crazy. But for me. He's the kind of guy you'd like to run into at your local and have a beer with. Sure, right? for sure. Because he's hilarious. But, you know, I thought, okay, I got to get some perspective on this. And so I did a little research. And, of course, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Together with his time in Sabbath and his solo career, he sold over 100 million records. Wow. So somebody thinks I'm crazy. Yes. Oh, uh, me right here, well, but we knew that even before yeah. Ozzy, yeah. And get this, the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors <laughs> gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. The really? Ivor Novello Award, yes. And, I mean, you know who gets those awards? Oh, Peter Gabriel, right. Van Morrison, Mark Knopfler, you know, kind of giants in the music industry, okay, and well, they gave one to Ozzy. Okay, they, what were they on at the time? Because I I love Ozzy, but I'm not sure he deserves an Ivor Novello Award. Lifetime Achievement. <laughs> Lifetime Achievement, yeah. Okay. Anyway, these clips are really, really fun. Mm-hmm. Fan or not, here's Ozzy talking about why he left Black Sabbath. The actual reason why I left Sabbath was because I got very bored with the, the internal politics. I mean, that Sabbath was... And on the front, on the surface, it was a great cult thing for the kids. But behind the scenery, it was as black as his name, you know. Because mm-hmm. every, I mean, we'd get, we'd walk a foot and get knocked back six miles, you know. And it was like a struggle. And 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 at the end of the day, we were fighting the world, management, agents, record company, and oh, I mean, the last two we ever did with with uh, what did we Black Sabbath was with Van Halen. Now Van Halen were on the same record comp label as it was Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. both same band, and we were getting treated like we were and it didn't exist by the record company. And yet Van Halen were an up and coming band, like we we were being used like as a launch pad for them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt really disillusioned by it, and I thought, well, I don't need this anymore. At the end of the day, we started quarrelling and bickering at each, each other, and it was like. Everyone was, everyone wanted the split, but no one was, everyone was afraid to say, we can't divorce Black Sabbath because that's been our bread and butter for so many years. And I just had enough of it and I thought, well, sink or swim, goodbye, guys. And, I, and as it happens, it's been the best move I've ever made in my life. All right, we know what's on the menu on this interview coming up <laughs> next. I, I don't want to talk about this. Let's just play the clip. Do you really eat live doves? Yeah. You really do? Mm hmm. A live dove, you what, bite their heads off. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm hmm. Why did that enter as part of your act? It's not part of my act on stage. I just, just did it one day. I thought, well, I'll make a bit of an impression, you know. Let, let them know that I'm... So this was only a one-time oh, incident? Sure, sure, I don't do it every day. <laughs> I was going to say... See me around the park here chasing pa- pigeons. Ah. Well, you see, the thing is, for that one incident, every radio station, every interview I've done, in any mm-hmm. anywhere, has brought it up. always come up. Now... It's got to have been a, a good stunt because it's worked. That is funny because he has to answer that question at every interview. And he it's just true. says, I just says, yeah, I did it. And then he runs with it and attracted so much attention. I mean, he's had his share of controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, lawsuits by former bandmates over royalties um, and most darkly lawsuits from parents of kids who've committed suicide and who blamed Ozzy's lyrics for wow. inspiring that. Mm-hmm. Both of those were tossed out, by right. the way. Um, and the bat. <laughs> oh, no, it's a dove. <laughs> it's a dove. Well, actually, there was a bat, too, wasn't there? Well, I think that, honestly, I think in, in the... <laughs> the in bat the was pantheon, the entree. And the, <laughs> in the pantheon of urban myths, I think it goes back from a bat to a dove to a chicken, right? Uh, this is what it sounds like mm-hmm. when hosts cry. Um, <laughs> and he talks about getting sober. It's a great feeling to sort of get up in the morning, 
and feel good with the day. Whereas before, I'd get up and f- reach out for the bottle of booze and want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. I was drinking at a, such a colossal rate with Sabbath all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Because, it, oh, you know, and I still drink quite a lot, but I don't drink, I drink after the day's over, you know, and get unwinds and everything. But I was just drinking for, to get away, and then I had to say to myself at the end, this ain't doing you any good. It ain't doing a lot of people that love you any good. Also, you had some pretty big ambitions as well, as you'll hear in this next clip. I always um, had dreams of doing something spectacular and being people recognising me and all this bit, you know. I knew I would never spend my life working in factories forever because I could never keep a job because I didn't like it. You know, nine to five just drives me nuts. I've got to be on the move. I'm like a gypsy, you know. And uh, I always had, I always had a dream of being a Beatle, like I was a Paul McCartney freak as a child. You know, I mean, it sounds kind of weird that I should say that, but I was. I mean, I said want to be a Beatle so bad. I thought that lifestyle really turned me on. And unfortunately for me, I, I got the right break at the right time, and I took it from there. You know, I mean, 16 years in, there, and I'm still as up for it as I ever was. You know what I love is he kind of talks about Ozzy like this character. That's aside from who he is, and, and this is quite, I think, quite revealing. If I was to be Ozzy Osbourne off stage, I think I'd have been dead ten years ago, you know, because it's a role I play. To, it's I give the kids what they want. I don't pretend to be anything else but what I am, you know. When I'm off stage, I just like to relax, watch a little TV, have a few drinks, and just be myself. But you know, in the last twelve months, I haven't realised I've been. I have in a, in a lot of ways become in a lot of areas become a household name. Oh, it's him, you know. And I don't think they'll walk around like, looking around like everybody else. And I suddenly think, what are all these people following me for? And then it comes back to me who I am. I, think, I don't let it overtake my life. I like to be myself, you know. I mean, I don't walk around with entrees of people. And I, I don't go to the Dean clubs. I don't go to... I just go into a bar, sit down and just relax. And you, suddenly you, you sit there and you think, why are they all glaring at me? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird life. But then... It, it all rushes back, oh, God, it's me, you know. And I forget what I'm doing, you know. It's, it sounds weird. But I, I, I don't try, I don't I try my hardest not to let it overtake myself. Wow, that, that, yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. That's so interesting that he would, you know, sometimes when, when stars talk about themselves in the third person, you worry about them. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I think that... I think that stars have to create an alter ego. You know, Beyonce did it with Sasha Fierce. They they create right. this alter ego, and that's why many of them have um, stage names. So didn't, that didn't they can Garth be... Brooks create one as well? Oh man, that was a disaster. <laughs> Chris Gaines, <laughs> yeah. that that did not work out well no, for him. Right. And it was the soul patch. I think that that really that got him. It. Yeah, that yeah. was not good. And the haircut, mm. man, oh man. But I get why you need that. But you do worry about that persona taking over who you really are. That's very interesting. Well, he has had a few things take over who he really is. And he's, he's battled some demons. And uh, he talks about it in this next clip. And you'll notice there's a reference to my fiance. I used to take a lot of drugs at once. I'm a hell of a lot of drugs. And then one day I woke up and I thought to myself, well, what are you doing? It's good for the minute. It's like, it's like groupies. I don't go with groupies anymore either. Because it's, 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 from, it's a momentary, momentary, momentary kick that you, all you're doing is screwing your body. And you only have one body, you know. I mean, how, how on earth I've survived through the, the journey that I've been through, God only knows I must be here for a purpose, I keep saying. Because I have the will to say, I don't want that anymore. And I, I'm one of the lucky few that say, oh, I don't want that junk. Because it is junk. It burns your brain out, you know. You end, I, I ended up like, didn't, how did I get here? What, where did I go last night? Who did I, I didn't do that. 
I, no, I didn't really say that to that person. And you don't know. And I suddenly decided that if I want to make a guy out of it, I've got to be together. I mean, I still drink booze, but I don't drink in a day that I'm working. If, if I've got a day I have to recover from it, then I'll do it. I'll have a few dr shots and get loaded like everybody else. Does. Like, why not, you know? But I, I take very little drugs. In fact, virtually none anymore because my fiancé, also my manager, she's, like, she's good for me. I, I need that sort of person to say... Listen, this is for real. You're not joking around anymore. There's a lot of people out there relying on you. And the best thing that I've ever had is take a ban on myself. It's me. And if I screw up, they don't care because they can get a gig anyway. It's not like the Black Sabbath, four individuals. Right. Anyone could play behind me, but as long as I'm up there, it's a thing. So therefore, I realize the responsibility that I have to not only myself, but to everyone that surrounds me. Great stuff from Ozzy Osbourne from the early 80s. Thanks, Christopher. That's terrific. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. And I'm Christopher Ward. Christopher, let's go back about 10 years to December of 2008. So Katy Perry has hit it big with a couple of big songs. We've got I Kissed a Girl right. and Hot and Cold. Mm -hmm. And she's got a couple of smaller hits also in the on the burners that are you know, kind of mid-level on the charts. And she comes up to see us. She's in Toronto doesn't quite know how to dress. Let's hear that interview with <laughs> Katy Perry and Richie Favalero. She's here from an innocent church girl in Santa Barbara to a cake-diving, fruit-wearing, girl-kissing pop star. <laughs> She's just one of the boys. Hello, Katy. Katy Perry. Good morning. How you doing today? I'm good. It's uh, been a good day so far. Early call time, 5 a.m. Got in a power cat nap uh, for 15 minutes, and I'm here. Talking to you. Yeah, and you know, this isn't your first time to Toronto, so in your travels to here north of the border, have you got any favorite places to go yet? Um, I Well, I definitely love Toronto, and I definitely love being in this cold weather. I mean, it's weird being a California girl and not having many articles of clothing and being in freezing temperatures. I mean... I'm a little bit more prepared these days, um, but when I think I think when I first came here, I didn't know it was going to be cold already, and, and so I looked kind of a bit like an idiot, like layering all of my clothes. I looked like a, I don't know. It's weird. You sometimes you can really spot the tourists when they're just like, there's so many patterns. Yeah, and they look like a walking, um, what's that tire guy? No, oh, yeah, they look like a walking Michelin man. <laughs> Let's talk about the tattoo that you do have. Yeah. What's that say? That says Jesus, and that's on my left wrist. And I'm assuming that this tattoo has way more than one meaning for you. Um, well, it just basically means remember where you came from. Um, you know, it's something super permanent in my life when a lot of things around me are changing. And a lot of my world is changing. It's something that, like, there's no eraser for. You know, it's what I am. It's where I came from. And it's always a really great reminder. <laughs> well, because your parents are pastors who have been, contrary to uh, popular belief, very supportive of your career, even so much that uh, you had them in uh, your latest video for Hot and Cold. What was that like? Uh, it was great. I mean, they're the one, my dad was especially begging to be in, in the video. <laughs> My dad is pretty much where I get all of my wisecracks from. He's he's where I get all of my jokes. I mean, he is like the master pranker. And I grew up, you know, around his sense of humor. And I guess it, you know, wore off on me a little bit. And uh, 
You know, he's always just, both of my parents are just like, what are you doing next? Like, what are you wearing next? And how did we make a Grammy-nominated thing? (laughs) There's all kinds of like, I can't believe you actually made it, you know? I I think for many years I was, you know, asking for help from them. And I think it turned into like five years where I needed help from them. And I'd call my mom up and be like, Mom, please, just put like 50 bucks in my account. I really need some, like, pita and hummus. Well, one thing that's true for sure is that this February is going to be a really exciting time for you. You have your first Grammy nomination up for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for I Kissed a Girl. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. And now... Happy about you that. You must be happy. Yes, of course. And now I want to play a little word association with you. Okay. Okay, I'm going to say something I want you to say the first thing that comes into your mind. Right. A- Adele. Um, best New Artist. Sarah Bareilles. Um, Rob, the best new artist. <laughs> Duffy. Um, I like, I like, uh, I like uh, that other song. What is it called? Warwick Avenue. I love Warwick Avenue. I really do. Me too. How about Pink? Pink. She's just getting started <laughs> again. <laughs> I saw some pictures of her doing, like, trapeze moves for her next tour, I suppose. And I'm just like, you're so good. You take it to the next level. That's what we always need. She's so effervescent. Yeah, I, she you, sure you is. You love that. Sure. I mean, you know, how many times have we had interviews where the subject just sits there like a bump on a log, you yeah. know, looking extremely bored with the entire process? Absolutely. So, yeah, bring me... Me, Katy Perry. You have, I've listened to so many interviews, Christopher, and a lot of the British artists who came over in kind of the new wavy type mm-hmm. era, I think they thought they were too cool for school and so they muttered. Maybe they just had no training into how to do an interview and they're muttering and mumbling and you're just kind of going, guys, like you've got to. You've got to bring something to this interview because people are going to be bored and they're not only going to not like the interview, but they're not going to like you. But she was certainly the complete opposite. I think artists of this era, and Mm -hmm. I'll count this interview as, say, the beginning of this era, are more comfortable with their own ambition. Yes. And just laying it on the line and I'm here and I got something to talk about and I'm proud of my work. Think of the Lady Gaga interview we recently had on. Mm -hmm. I love that. I thought that I thought that Lady Gaga interview ran a little bit deeper than this interview that well, we yes. just heard, and I, I think that I think that speaks a little bit of the mindset of Lady Gaga, who considers herself more of an artist, whereas Katy Katy Perry, I think, considers herself more of a performer and entertainer. Yeah. Now that being said, I know that her um, her documentary about her tour was deeply emotional and I know she really laid it all out and so there are mm. fans who really love her for that as well and uh, and you know kudos to her um, and like I say this didn't go particularly deep but I really I really love some of the stuff that she said and how much fun she is and also the fact that she's shouting out Adele and particularly Pink like this is 10 years ago mm-hmm. and she's still talking about what Pink is bringing to the table and how much of a talent that Pink is and she still is oh uh, she's Referencing uh, how she does the acrobatics yes. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I saw it was on the Grammy Awards where yeah. she did that first performance. On sure. The, that was mind-boggling. It was mind-boggling. And then she did it again recently at another award show in, uh, in 2017, and it was equally mind-blowing. So great stuff from uh, Katy Perry, and thanks very much to Richie Favalero for that interview. Boy, Richie does a lot of interviews these days. He's still at it, and we'll be bringing a lot more with him and whatever artist he's talking to next, coming up soon on Famous Lost Words. Okay, so now we go back to 1998, 
And this is Beatles producer George Martin. And I got to tell you, it was a thrill meeting him on the day he came in and he signed my copy, Christopher. Oh, did he? Of Abbey Road. My favorite Beatles album. I've got Paul McCartney's autograph on on my copy of Sgt. Pepper. So that is probably my most prized possession. I'm not telling anybody where I live because (laughs) I just, I really do value that. Well, you do have a 24-hour guard. I do. Yeah. I do. It's called My Girlfriend and uh, she's tough. So, um, and uh, so he signed my copy of Abbey Road and he was very gracious and he was really open to talking about a lot of things. So here he is in conversation talking with Dale Smith. And of course, uh, Dale, Dale talked a lot about the album that George was promoting and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that part was terrific. But we're going to cut to the chase where he talks about his relationship with the Beatles and also his thoughts on John Lennon. So here's George Martin in conversation with Dale Smith. Let me ask you something. Uh, and I'm sure you've probably been, you even asked before but I haven't had the chance to yet. You were talking about uh, there are people I've worked with and some are living, some are dead. Obviously, one of the most traumatic moments that we all lived through, and myself being a, as big a Beatles fan as I am, was the death of John Lennon. Where did you first Where did you first learn of it, and, and what were the circumstances behind you learning about it? Oh, gosh. I mean, the deaths of people, the death of John Lennon, the death of Princess Diana. There have been so many things like that in my life. In, in John's case, I'd been working on an album with Paul McCartney. I think it was either... I think it was... Tug of War? I think it was tug of war. And that day we were going to meet in London. He was driving up from his house in the country and I was driving up from my house the other end of the country. I was in Wiltshire. And we were going to work in the studios. And the morning for me began around about six o'clock in the morning when the phone rang and I was sound asleep. And I picked it up wondering who the hell it was. And I was live on air and I didn't know it. And there was some guy ringing from America saying, is that... George Martin, can you tell us how you feel about the death of John Lennon? What a way to wake up. I couldn't believe it. And my reaction went out on air, live. And I couldn't, you know, it was such a stunning, awful thing to happen. And when I put the phone down and I rang Paul immediately, even though it was six in the morning, and he'd already heard. And I said, Paul, you obviously don't want to come in to work today. He said, George, I couldn't stay here. You don't, don't you mind? Do you mind if we come in you know, and meet? I said, sure, okay. So we met in my studios in London, and we didn't work. We just talked. We mm. talked about John, and we talked about ourselves and what we'd been, been through. And it was a kind of easing of the pain for both of us. And he went home around about five or six that night, and there was a whole crowd of journalists outside, and he was still in a state of shock, as I was. And he, as he walked to his car, the journalist stuck microphones in front of him. Hey, Paul, what do you think about John dying? You know, these kind of questions make me so angry. And, and he said, yeah, it's a drag, isn't it? And got in his car. And he was labelled the following day as being callous and, and human. Yeah. And so you can't win. No. People don't understand that. They, they expect you to be immediately eloquent and everything else. And, yeah. And you must be in, in utter shock. That's right. Um reuniting with the three of them for the uh, for the anthology that was fun series yeah that was in, that was strange uh, strange and, and fun um and in fact you know i it took a long time i worked for about two years off on and off on that and in abbey road studios and i would go along and delve and listen and when i got something interesting i would ring them up saying if you're around come in and i'll play it to you so paul will come in or george might come in sometimes all three came in at once 
And it was like old times, you know, we would sit there and chatting and, and joking. And the, the engineers at Abbey Road Studios wonder what the hell was going on <laughs> because it was old times. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, great fun. And uh, it, we enjoyed it enormously. But doing that was traumatic in a way because you went through the bad times as well as the good. And I would hear myself talking to John and John talking back and, and them talking amongst each other, you know. Um, and also listening to tracks I'd quite forgotten. Some stuff I'd had, hadn't even remembered ever writing, you know. There was one track on it which is called A Beginning that I'd completely forgotten about. There we are. Hmm. Life's like that. When it takes you back, how was it back in the... Uh, I guess, when did, when did it first start to go south with the group? When did you finally say, oh, geez, these guys just aren't... Well, I suppose Brian's death had a bad effect on everyone. Yeah. You know, because that was, that was pretty traumatic. That was in the August 1967. Yeah. And we went, got through a Magical Mystery Tour after that and the White Album. But the White Album was the beginning of their separations. They all wanted to do their own things. Let It Be was the most uncomfortable time. And I thought that Let It Be was the end of everything because they didn't like each other and uh, they weren't doing good work and, and John was being very difficult. Um, and he was getting more and more into drugs at that time. And I, I was quite surprised when they, at the end of it, uh, you know, the months went by and then they said, come back and do it. Come, we'd like to make another record. And I, first of all, I refused. I said, no, I'm not going through that again, thank you. Uh, I don't, I, you didn't let me do what I should do. Um, they said, no, we'd like you to go back to really what you used to do. And so Abbey Road took place, and Abbey Road was everything that... It was going really back to the old days, where me being producing in the way I used to. And um, it was a very happy record. Great stuff. Okay, so let's pick up that conversation as it continued with George Martin talking about working with Paul and his relationship with the other Beatles. I mean, we'd always been good friends. After, even after the Beatles broke up, I was good friends with every one of them. Mm-hmm. And Paul and I quite often used to have dinner in town with Linda and Judy and I. And one evening, when I'd, ta- I'd taken them out, and I dropped them back at their flat in, in London, and we said goodbyes, and just as I was about to drive off, Paul raced forward and knocked on the window and said, Oh, I forgot to tell you. What's that, Paul? What if you left something behind? No, he said, I wanted to ask you, would you produce my next album? I said, Paul, we've been together all evening. You haven't said a damn <laughs> word. What are you on about? I said, we'd better talk about this. And, you know, well, let's, have a, let's have a business meeting. So we met up and I, I said, you know, I'm not sure it's going to work, Paul. He said, why? I said, because you've been for eight years, you've been your own boss and your own producer and you're so good at it. You don't need me anymore, for God's sake. And I don't, I think if I start telling you what to do, you won't like it. He said, listen, he said, we're such good friends, it's not going to get in the way. I said, okay, if you think that, then we'll start off with the repertoire. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've got to listen to his songs and see whether they're worthwhile. (laughs) (laughs) And he he was so shocked. He he said, you mean I've got to audition for you? I said, listen, if you want me to be a producer... <laughs> However, we did, we got on fine. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> great. We have to consult the repertoire. Yeah, yeah. No well, kidding. well, he's just he's just doing his job with it yeah. with that wry sense of humor. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really glad that he defended Paul's response to Lennon's death because that has been a club that McCartney has been beaten with for forty years now, almost. And I mean, I don't think. 
you know, when you lose somebody that close that you owe the press or the public any explanation for mm-hmm. your feelings. And uh, that was always a, a really kind of sad event. So I, I'm really glad to hear him clear some of that up. I do believe that Paul was just in a state of shock. And, you know, as you heard in that clip, Paul and George Martin were working together on that very evening and they were trying to figure out what to do. But they did they did get together. And um, and it's good that they had each other around that time. But it's interesting to me over time to see how the Beatles' flame has been tended. I was um, working for a while uh, for Cirque du Soleil, helping write music for one of their shows. And I was talking to the guy, and of course I had to ask the questions, who produced the uh, love show. And he said that the most terrifying moment for him was the day that Olivia and Yoko showed up. (laughs) And they were going to weigh in on what was happening. And the only sort of caveat that they offered was that they didn't want sort of physical representations like characters playing the part of the four Beatles. So that didn't go in the show. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, you I know, like that. I like that. You've, have you seen that show? I haven't. Love in uh, Vegas? No. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is one of the most extraordinary pieces of entertainment I've ever seen. And there are people, you know, the Beatle lovers, who will call it heresy, the fact that all those tracks were deconstructed, yeah. mostly by Giles Martin, yeah. which took him two years to do. Yeah. But I, I think somebody, like, when I think of how John Lennon would respond, I think he would have loved it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, just have at it. You know, nothing is sacred. Just go for yeah. it. See the show. Mm-hmm. I will. Okay, Chris, before we get to our last segment, I want to play you this, okay? Because our next guest is coming in in a few minutes to meet us and to talk to us. And you know her well, and I know her a little bit. (laughs) Um, But she has a connection with this artist, and it's Joe Cocker. So, Joe Cocker, you said, do we have any Joe Cocker audio? So, I I searched and searched, and I found this, and it's the worst thing you've ever heard. (laughs) Like, like technically, it's horrible, and and the and so the quality of the clip is terrible, and the content of the clip is terrible. So Adam, play it for us right now. We're only hostile when people are hostile to us. We're not hostile to people just as a matter of course. I don't want no trouble. All right, I want no trouble, baby. Well, Truthfully, I think, really, I don't think you could call us sort of un- uncomfortable. I, I think we I just do. sort of. Uh, I do. I agree with them. Uh, you could <laughs> probably call us <laughs> very forthright. <laughs> we don't believe in putting on this big showbiz oh, face. No, 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 Someone annoys us, we just kick them out. He's got cat teeth, dirty vest. What? I don't know. Excuse me? That's listed under Joe Cocker. That's all I've got. So We don't even know if that's him. No, we have no idea what that is, who that is, but that's listed as Joe Cocker in the archives and the only clip we've got. Here we are back with Famous Lost Words, and that voice you hear in the background is the lovely and talented Christopher Ward. No, oh, no it's the minute. lovely and talented Sass Jordan. Hello, the famous lost Sass Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you made it right on time today. Nice I sure did. Done. I sure did. Sass, it's so lovely to have you here. The last time we talked um, was for an interview from my, my book about the early years yeah. of much music. And I remember you told me at the time that video sort of changed everything, and I kind of felt like you were accusing me of ruining your life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know what I must have been talking about. The fact that the video, my first video. Yeah, you said you couldn't go one. in the laundromat anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know why you'd want to go in the first place, but yeah. Your video hits much music and your life changes. Yeah, because all of a sudden people would recognize me everywhere mm-hmm. I went. I mean, before that, 
Nada, baby, nada. You have worked with a veritable parade of legends through the years. Including yourself, Chris. Well, I, I mean real legends. Honest <laughs> to goodness legends. You've worked with people like Aerosmith, right? And AC, yeah, well, AC, I mean, DC, I did and... shows with them. Steven Tyler is one of my all-time favorites. Why? Because he is so full of the joy of life. Mm-hmm. He was just incredibly kind and incredibly generous. And for me... Steven Tyler was played a big part right. in my rock and roll fantasy. Did he inspire you, know? you as a vocalist as well? Because I think of his his phrasing, like on Ragdoll and stuff like that, is just so That's funky. Brilliant. He's amazing. He's one of the greats, in my opinion. But mm. it, funnily enough, it's Paul Rogers that really from Free, from Free, Bad Company, Bad Company. Free, yeah. Queen in the later years. Mm-hmm. So Sass, you are really well known across Canada for many of your hits, especially from the late '80s, early '90s. And we love uh, love your music, and mm-hmm. we know that you performed today. My girlfriend just saw you up in Huntsville about three, oh, at the girlfriend's uh, a, weekend on the girlfriend's weekend, <laughs> and she was just blown what? away. Right, so. So oh, that's awesome. What, it's a women's kind of get together with all kinds of different classes. Sass shows up and blows everyone away with how good she is and how powerful she is. And I saw some video from that event and it was great and everybody was into it. And you still, you're still a passionate performer. You still have a great voice, right? So that's a fantastic thing to still be able to do after all these years. People not only know you for your songs and your performances, but they also know you for a song that was on the biggest album of the 1990s. And that is a song that you did with Joe Cocker. Um, And it was called... Trust me, right? That's it. Trust me. This guy is the winner. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that experience and how that song was recorded. And did you ever work with Joe Cocker afterwards? The interesting thing is that I only worked with Joe Cocker afterwards because the song had already been recorded. And he had recorded it, I think it had been like maybe three or four years prior wow. with a, a, a wonderful Australian singer whose name sadly escapes me. Um, doing the part that I did, but Kevin Costner, who directed The Bodyguard, wanted, he was driving around L.A. one day and heard one of my songs on the radio, and he goes, I want that voice on this soundtrack. Good call. And, and he's massive, massive Joe Cocker fan, so he said, let's do this song, replace the voice with sass, and that way I can have the best of both worlds for what I want to do. And that's precisely what happened about maybe six months later, I toured with Joe Cocker. Okay, one of the, by the way, P.S. is another one of the greatest voices mm, on the sure, yeah. So, touring with Joe Cocker, I don't run into him through the whole tour. We're, we're, we're the opening slot. Don't run, As it's so often the case, right? Oh, often. Yes, because we have to go to the next gig and we don't have a private jet quite <laughs> yet. And uh, last show, his manager took me into the dressing room to, to meet Joe. And I'm like, oh, my God, Mr. Cocker, Joe, it was such an honor to sing with you on that song. And he's looking at me <laughs> with this, I can see this. this face. He's like, what song? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this mofo has no idea about what I'm talking about. Yes. And, and his manager jumps in and goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She sang, she, you know, bodyguard. She's, they, they, and he goes, oh, oh, yes, lovely, lovely, darling, yes, oh, yes. That's, that's great. Lovely. And it only sold like a billion copies, oh, right? Oh, my God. Like, it's like 32 million or something insanely ridiculous. 
that I can actually say I'm on a record that sold 32 million. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was all me. Thank you. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, Whitney. Uh, can we? Can I just say Whitney? Yeah. yeah, I've talked to Christopher about this, about the success of the song Black Velvet and how that kind of was a career that changer. That was his for him. song. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I've taught we've <laughs> talked to Mark Jordan about writing the song Rhythm of My Heart for Rod Stewart. And but was this song? Is that a game changer for you in terms of maybe financial security you as trust well? In me? God um, no, <laughs> no. So <laughs> did you? Even did you benefit? No, did you benefit I, from it? We, I had okay. Let's consider how many uh, copies this record sold. Yeah, it, we're it, over the thirty-two million mark. I got twenty grand. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> and it stopped there, ladies and gentlemen. It was a buyout in the, in our business. There's such thing that it was, wow. It's called a buyout. So at the time, that's a you know that's a good chunk of change. Well, but over the years, that's really disappointing. I, one, I. Exactly. And and I don't blame anybody. Sure. And I don't even care. Right. At the end, who cares? Yeah. Now, listen to this. Okay. I got a little mm-hmm. story about that. I was in a supermarket with my daughters about, I don't know, maybe, you know, 12 years ago. And we were buying a sandwich at the deli counter. And the girl behind the deli counter is going, oh, my God. Yeah, black velvet and the little girl. And I'm like, no, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. Uh, you saved that story for life. me, didn't you? This yeah. is my life, Christopher. Oh, for the rest gee. of my life, I have to deal with the fact that I did not sing Black Velvet and half the world thinks I did. Go Sa- Gee, I'm sorry about Bob. that. So, Sas, <laughs> I'm fairly certain that when I interviewed you in 1988, and I, I, I remember that interview vividly, because you were very much the same person you are now. You're so full of life. You were great. You were really welcoming to me, and I was really new um, to interviewing. So you were one of the first big artists that I interviewed. And you were terrific at the time. You were great to me. But I know that one of the questions that I asked you back then was, something along the lines of okay so here you are you've got your first album out if this album doesn't become the biggest thing in the world that's not going to stop you from being a performer because music is in your blood so it doesn't matter that perhaps you didn't become a superstar you became a well-known person in Canada had a few hits probably that leaked over into the states and you did you did very well but that would never chart position chart success hit songs was never going to define who you are because you're a performer through and through and a musician through and through and you would never stop no matter what happened am i correct in saying that that's what's become of you absolutely yeah no it's it's very much about the music Mm. but it's also very much about the now this sounds so hokey but the healing the healing that occurs in large groups of people when they are when they are brought together through a commonality, which is the music. For me, I love singing, but it's a difficult job. It's very challenging because you are reliant on your voice being in shape. So you can't go out and do what I personally love to do, which is drink eight bottles of wine, not three. <laughs> I like eight. And scream. It's a nice even number. Yell. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, you took a big tangent God. career-wise when you when you uh, took part in Canadian Idol. What yeah, was just yeah, yeah, yeah. looking back on that experience? Laughing. What what was that experience like Laughter. for you? Was it a great time, or was it like okay, I don't really want to be on television anymore? How did you feel about? No, it, it was 
phenomenal. It was the best paid I've ever been in my whole oh, life. <laughs> better better I, than that's Joe. That's a big thing. Yeah. That's a big thing for Sassy Pants. I need something to fund sassy my eight, pants. Dollar, okay, you're my eight be... bottle a night. Yes. Canadian Idol was a riot, yeah. a blast, had so much fun. You looked like you were having fun. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. There was, there was such tremendous hilarity and a real uh, sense of camaraderie. And it was it was it was an enormous amount of fun. Well, thank you, Sassy Pants, for coming in to see yeah. us today. Because Will you come back? My <laughs> pants are all sassy just for you guys. <laughs> Sass Jordan, everyone. Thank you. Okay, time now for the wisdom of Dave. Here's David Lee Roth. He'll play a little bit more than a little bit, as a matter of fact. We have several synthesizers placed around the stage. It's all custom-made staging. Everything that you see and hear of Van Halen is designed in-house or in cave, depending on how you look at it, everything. And so, you know, we built up a huge stage, you know, with ramping and so forth. And then there are keyboards hidden amongst the rubble and he'll kind of ambulate from one place to the next. Okay, Dave. Ah, St. Dave, (laughs) thank you. I'm ready to face the world now. Okay, go out there and make everybody happy. That wraps up another episode of Famous Lost Words. Thank you for listening. 